Hey guys, at the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. Yeah, no, I get a call from a a number... An unknown number. I'm literally. I can. I can still remember when I got that call because I was in the work building, thinking. You know, when you kind of go, I don't know that number. I'm not going to answer that. But you know, for some reason, I do, and I answer this number, and the guy says, "I'm your brother's lawyer," and I'm like, "What?" And everything just comes crashing down when he says to me, "He's in custody," and. It's like you're having an out-of-body experience, right? Because what do you mean? I'm like I'm in this building. Actually, I remember him saying to me, are you still there? He kind of gives me a whole bunch of instructions and I hang up. I, I, I have to do two things. One, I have to follow the whatever he's told me to do. And I actually can't even remember what, it, what that was. And I walk into my boss's office and I've got to declare it. Because that's what you you know you have to do. Because now he's in the system. He's in the system in which I'm working. Welcome to a time to rebuild, the podcast that explores the impact of crime, from incarceration to positive transformation and everything in between. On today's episode, we have a brother and sister. Mo and Shema. Now, growing up in an Egyptian family with parents that immigrated to Australia from Egypt, Mo's life was pretty, pretty normal for a young Australian kid. And going in further in life, it seemed like it was going on just the traditional path most Australians uh, go on. It wasn't until later on that he started offending, uh, which led him down a, a different path to his sister, Shema. And this is a really interesting side. So Shema walked in Corrections Victoria for many years. Um, and uh, she actually knew the Bridge Project and Rebuild and, and we, I've known her for a while. And so you have on one side Mo who ends up in the system and on the other side you have your sister Shema who walks in and for the system. So that in itself brings a lot of layers of complexity to their story and to their lives. We are lucky enough to hear them sharing it. Really fascinating story. So I guess let's just jump straight into it. Let's do it. Yeah, well, it sort of started when I was really quite young. Um, my, my, my family really didn't like the friends I had at school and they wouldn't really trust them with them, but they loved my next door neighbor who was six years older than me. And they said, you know, you can do whatever. Just hang, on, hang out with your next door neighbor. The problem was my next door neighbor was a, became quite a serious drug user and a serious drug dealer when he was 18 or 19 and I was six years younger so I was still 14 so I'd be hanging out with him on the weekends because my my family was you know they loved him they thought that was the best option but that I was I was using with him you know whether it be speed or or um or back then there was no ice but um just pills and stuff so I'd be using with them on the weekends um and because he was my neighbor, we grew up together, he really did look after me. Like, I mean, he'd give me pills and we'd have speed or whatever, but there was an element where he was, you know, I was, I was his psychic. Like, I was there with him all the time. You know, I, I worshipped him, so I was with him all the time. So what happened is when, you know, when I got to year 12 and stuff like that, I, the friends I had at school, they really didn't have the exposure to the drugs like I did. So I was the one now, you know, we were, you know if we're smoking bongs, you know, it, it sort of became 
what you did when you weren't at work or when you weren't at uni. So I, I did that through uni. I managed to balance it. But the time when I was working at, you know, when I had that job for the, when I was working there for 12 years, I was, again, I thought I was being so so responsible. You know, Friday night you get on the pills or you get on the speed or whatever else. And then Saturday night, but I, you always knew with the group of friends, you always knew to cut it off on Sunday because you had to recover on Sunday to be good for work on Monday. And that went on for a long time until um, until halfway through I, I moved to Queensland to again for work. And because I wasn't in Melbourne, you know, the periods without, without drugs, it extended. You know, you might go six months without doing anything on the weekends. But... um. And then what happened was when I, because it's it's on the weekends, all of a sudden you're not working, you know, you're hanging out with these guys a lot more. It, it, it's, it then goes from Friday, Saturday to a Sunday night, you know, and then it creeps to your Monday night and you don't have to recover to get to anything on a Tuesday or, or whatever. So it takes up a lot more of your life. And, and, and that's, it really started so far back. It started when I was like 14. But, you know, when you get older, these little habits – it just becomes what you do, you know, and you don't think you're being irresponsible. Yeah, you're just living your life in a, in a different way. But so you've so if we get you've you've lost your job, your marriage um, has fallen apart, um, you're escalating in your in your use of drug use, you're hanging out with the you know wrong people as well. So so talk us in a little bit to where it takes you know, the probably most significant turn for you um, and obviously your family and, and your life as well where, you know, your behaviour and everything else um, leads you down a path of, uh, you know, trouble with the law. Well, I'd just been suspended from work. Um, I'd just come back from leave and I got suspended from work and um, it was like a, a one-week or a two-week period and I'm at the supermarket and I bumped into one of these guys that I hadn't seen in a long time and at this point I'm suspended from work. I'm really ashamed. I, I mean, I don't know what to go to say to my family. I'm about to lose my job, my career. That, you know, that's the only thing that really that made me feel like I had any value. So I bumped into this guy. He says, mate, come down to this house. I just live around the corner. I show up and what I know now, it's it's one of these drug dens, you know, where everybody's just off their heads and and I, and I still remember, you know, I still remember walking into that house and that's where everything fell apart because all of a sudden I'd never used ice before. And then, and that's where it all goes pear-shaped. You know, these guys are full-time users. You know, no one's working. They're living in these houses and and um, and I'm not seeing my family. I've, you know, uh, I'm avoiding them like the plague, you know. Um, uh, so, and that's when it starts, you know. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm seeing these guys using GBH and I'd never seen anyone behaving that way. Like, it was just horrific. I don't know if you guys ever seen anyone, yeah, you know, getting what they call juicy. And, and, and then again, I figure, well, that's really bad. No, I'll just smoke ice. That's, that's fine. You know, but I'm seeing these people on juice and I'm horrified by I'd never seen anything like it. But I was like, oh, th- but that's okay because I'm just using ice. I'm not, I'm not as bad as these people. And, and that's where it went. Yeah. So, you know, I had to, I wasn't working. So I had to, and you, kind money of, and you tell yourself that story that, hey, you know, it's all right. You know, yeah. like I've got this under control. Yeah. When you first walked into that house, did you intend to go in there and do drugs or was it more like he was an opportunity and then you just said, yeah, stuff it? No, I, I just wanted company because okay. I'm, I'm at home by myself. I'm on suspension. I don't want to go tell my good mates. Um, and by this time I had cut off from those really bad guys. You know what I mean? I just didn't, we didn't see each other in a long time. And, um, and my really good mates, it's, it's humiliating. You know, everyone's working. You know what I'm going to do? Go tell my family I just got suspended. 
Um, and so I just wanted some company. I'd been sitting at home on the internet, just rubbish. I hate that sort of stuff. And and so I bump into this guy and I'm like, oh, awesome. You know, this is someone to hang out with. They don't work. I'm not working. So I, I figure I hang out with these guys. And and that's what it was. And I remember walking in and seeing these guys on Juice and I was horrified. I, I couldn't, I'd never seen anything like that. And, and, um, and yeah, I, I, to be honest, I just wanted some company. I wanted someone to hang out with. I wanted people that they didn't work you know what i mean so i didn't have to measure myself anybody i'd measure myself against there was like i felt like i was mate i was flying how good am i i'm not look you know look at the condition of these guys you know i'm i'm really good here so it made me feel good about myself being around you know it, the bar set pretty low it's 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 pretty easy to you know to to feel good about yourself when you're in that sort of crowd you know so where do you make the decision that you know what leads to you know the decision where you you end up in incarcerated. Well, that goes on for about a good twelve months, um, and then I, I was I, I had a I had a house that sort of drug den that I witnessed that slowly became my place, you know. And so you know the, you know all of a sudden you're dealing a little bit just to support your habit because you're not working. Where are you going to get money from? And I wasn't. I'm. I've never been. You know the the scamming, rorting, You know that some guys. That's that's what they do to get by. And I couldn't really do it. I, I couldn't bring myself to to steal even from a shop. I just it just wasn't my thing. So you, you had to start dealing a bit just to be able to support your habit. And actually, I just try to think now. And then the first time I was incarcerated, I had to take. You know, I, I was. I think I was going to see a guy in Swan Hill. It was a really f- a long drive and. I pulled over to have a nap and I had a lot of drugs in the car and I had a lot of glass pipes and stuff like that and I pulled over to have a nap in, in Gisborne and and I woke up to, to police at my window, you know, and that was the first time I'd ever been arrested for you anything. Probably, you were probably hoping that was a dream, yeah? <laughs> I and, woke, I, and you woke up to a nightmare. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I actually thought I was being responsible. I pulled over to have a nap in a truck stop and then I woke up and these cops at the window and... How did that feel in that moment right there? Uh, you did know. you just, did you, did it all just come to a sense like, did you realize in that moment you were like, this is serious now? I was freaking out and I started telling him about work and I got sacked from work and I, and I, I just remember going into a ramble, I was freaking out and the co- they actually felt really sorry for me and they were like, mate, it's going to be okay. Like, mate, don't worry about it. And I remember I, in that, I don't know however long the time was, a few minutes. I just was spilling my guts to these two guys about my life and about losing my job. And I'm, you know, right. and you hit I, survival I, mode. Yeah. And right. I remember they felt really sorry for me. They were like, mate, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it, mate. You know, and they, they're taking me along. And, and it was first offense. So they obviously they bailed me out after a few hours. And I actually can't remember how long. After that yeah. And we didn't know. I was going to ask. We didn't know about that. No. And actually, being on bail, we didn't know he was on bail either. Until really the, the 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 next you know when that kind of escalated again and um, but I kind of think about that and I think about it's like I'm I'm listening to this and thinking you think you've got it under control but that's we know that's that's you know when we speak to people like in, yeah. in you know my experience it and you read notes and you read what people and you talk, and you listen to what people say is like I I had it I thought I had it under control or part of it was about feeling like you've got no purpose and value. And I'm listening to Muhammad and I'm saying, well, he didn't feel like he had any value because he, he wasn't working or he'd lost his career. And, you know, the shame of coming to your family and saying, you know, and, and look, let's be honest, my, my family was not, you know, they weren't blue-collar workers. That You know, my, my family had aspirations that were probably, you know, even today I'd say, you know, 
bit much calm it down you know kind of thing but um so the 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 shame and the is compounded by the, but you like he thought he had it under control we didn't want to ask the question because it's too hard to hear the answer and then it just keeps going until you know that saying about you've got to kind of hit rock bottom before yeah. you before you realize you've got You've only got two choices. Yeah. You know, you get bailed in this one and obviously you face whatever charges there is there. Um, and then do you continue to offend? Do you continue to, to, to you know, is there more incidents that happen after that? It, it just kept going. And I actually can't remember the the next time after that how I got arrested again. I actually, to be honest. But it was mainly around, mainly around possession. And mainly again, it was around just around yeah. possession, just small stuff. But they, again, I got I got arrested again after that and this time I didn't get bailed and then... This was a real. This was a serious. This, yeah, is, this so, is when you were facing custody. Now, when does it come about where this conversation happens, Mohammed and um, Shama, where you have to tell your family or your family finds out? How does that come about? He doesn't tell I us. We, you don't tell him. Yeah, so no. I get a call from so you a, a find number, out. Yeah. an unknown number. I'm literally. I can. I can still remember when I got that call because I was in the work building, thinking. You know, when you kind of go, I don't know that number. I'm not going to answer that. But you know, for some reason, I do. And I answer this number and the guy says, I'm your brother's lawyer. And I'm like, what? And everything just comes crashing down when he says to me, he's in custody. And it's like you're having an out-of-body experience, right? Because what do you mean? I'm like, I'm in this building. This is not like this is your home life and your work life almost colliding, like in the in the same kind of crazy ways his two lives or multiple lives are colliding, mine are colliding as well. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like I actually, actually I remember him saying to me, are you still there? Um, and he kind of gives me a whole bunch of instructions and I hang up and – I have to do two things. One, I have to follow the whatever he's told me to do, and I actually can't even remember what it, what that was. And I walk into my boss's office, and I've got to declare it. Yeah, because that's what you you know you have to do because now he's in the system. He's in the system in which I'm working. That's what I was in the system which you're yeah. living. Your what your whole mm-hmm. occupation is revolving around. Yeah. Your brother is now in that system, and you find out that is incredible. You find out. In a call, mm-hmm. and a random day that you're, you know, yep. in your in your workplace. Yep. And I go in and, like, you know, he, my my boss kind of looks at me and instantly he knows something's wrong because I don't know what my face was saying, but it clearly wasn't saying what it would normally. And I tell him, and he just, um, and I remember him saying to me, "It's okay. There's no shame in it." You should know of all people there's no shame in it. Like you work here for the for the rehabilitation. Like that you work here and you know that it's not the end of the world and that's why you work here. It's not the end of the world and he's going through a rough patch and he'll come out of it and you're hearing that but at the same time you're kind of not believing it. But you, the, just the... The, the enormity of feeling like, hang on a minute, this is like so bizarre that it's it's not one, it's not two lives anymore, it's just the one. And then everything you do at work, every program you think about, every visit you make, every conversation you have, 
just takes a completely different mm. lens. That's fascinating because, yeah, you can say there's no shame in it and all that, but you have this other insight mm-hmm. in your brain because you work in this industry, mm-hmm. so you know what's coming on the other side. Yep. So you can say, oh, yeah, I know the, the good part of it, where and the good part being, I know you can change your life, I know we can rehabilitate, but you also have this other side where you go, I know what's coming here. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know I, what's the potential of coming here, and I've yeah. seen what this can do yeah. as well. And now you've got your, you've got two, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've got two kind of emotions. You have your um, Shama who works in corrections, Victoria, and you've got Shama who's his sister, who's, sister who's, mm-hmm. who's, whose brother is in real trouble. But how did you, in them initial stages, did you go into work mode or sister mode or both? I think I did both in the sense that, you know, he was in custody and I was trying to figure out where he was and do you need to get close, you know, like the things that you never thought you'd think about. But you think like when someone says to you, you know, when a parent rang you at, in your job and they said, oh, I really need to get my son into a program, he's got, and you kind of go, okay, let's go. Let's try and get this guy into a program. Where is he? Let's try and move him around. You go and speak to people. And then all of a sudden you're kind of going, okay, how do I get close to this guy? Where is he? And you're trying to locate him in the system. And you realise actually it's not easy as it feels like when you're in the system and you realise how hard it is. And then you actually go, you start to think about all the things in the system that you know are not working, right, and all the things that um, you know are going to be hard and then it just almost crushes you to think that your own family member is about to go through that, right? And then and I think about him being in, at, at MAP and I go, oh, my God, of, of all places at MAP, like, I mean, I've been to MAP. It's not the place that anybody wants to be ever. Not even if you're working there, you struggle work there, working there. But um, it becomes a bit of both. Like I just need to get through and do it. And then I just – everything I do then becomes about – and I remember when I was talking to you before, I just think, kept thinking he's in there and at the end of the day the door locks and I can hear the sound of the door locking in prison – because you've been there and you kind of walk through and they give you tours and this is what it's like and and then all I can think of is the sound of that door locking and him being on the other side of it and that's just crushing not crushing to because we kind of been close but um in the sense that it's crushing for me to think about but imagine what it feels like for him yeah and and yeah exactly it's yeah. Even you speaking about that's given me an image. Like, and even you said yeah. it before, it's 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 painted an image. Even we were speaking, I just I was thinking of that. And and we work in an industry, we work in prison and so forth. But you never want to be in that position because I sometimes feel, and um, I don't know if you feel this as well, Shama, but I sometimes feel it's quite easy for us when we're removed from it to give advice and give options and so forth um, until you experience it. And then it then it shifts into a different mindset for you as well. If it's a family member, if it's yourself, it's whatever as well. So so I've, when you said that, you just painted a picture to me that you know I'm sure the listeners have had that picture painted for them as well. So mm. sorry before taking that phone call, uh, what was your communication like between the two of you? Oh, it was a bit MIA. Like we hadn't yeah. really had contact. Every now and then there was some texting, but I kind of knew. Again, it's kind of the things that you kind of go, oh, God, I know something's wrong, but, we, you know, he was going through his divorce and I remember meeting him at the at the barrister's office and he looked dishevelled. He looked all the things that I should know, right? Mm. 
He looked dishevelled. He was not thinking straight. He was late. It's not him. He's normally on time. He's normally very well presented. And I look at him and the lawyer's looking at him and I'm looking at the lawyer and I'm going, okay, this is not him. And for a minute there, I almost don't recognise him. So the comms was intermittent and really crisis space because he's going through this divorce at the same time and I'm going, you just need to come in and meet with the lawyer, you, you know, like, and so that's, there's that thing about trying to hold, you feel like you have to try and hold things together for him. He, and then, I, you know, having not seen him in a long time, when he showed up that day, that was probably the point at which I knew there was, I didn't even know to ask. Yeah. yeah. And Mohammed, from your side then, so you're in MAP and you're facing, you know, um, charges. You've got a lawyer who's probably telling you what could happen. Um, you're probably, I don't know if your mind's thinking optimistic. You're trying to hope that maybe it won't happen. Um, what like, what was it like? Obviously you went to court and, you, you know, you're heard in court for what your, you know, your charges are and you get a sentence. Yeah. Was it, was it, how did it play out? Can you explain a little bit like how, what what happened? Yeah, it was well. It was a little bit before I got the sentence. I was denied bail, right? And then, um, so I was remanded in custody. Right. So you're restrained of course, you're remanded. Yeah. Yeah, so. but I mean, you guys talk about the map. The map is an absolute pleasure. It's it was the cells. You know, I was in the cells for 14 days, and that is that is pure hell. You know, that is pure hell in those little cells. Um, and you're in there 14 days. You can't come out of that cell at all with three other guys, and they call the yellow submarine because everything's yellow down there. And, yeah, you know, you wake up in the morning, you open your eye and there's a guy sitting like not even a metre away from you sitting on a toilet, you, you know, doing a number two. And this goes on for 14 days. You know, they come, they open a little slot and they put your food through there. And um, and that was brutal. It was I, – I, I, it was – I can't even – I don't have words to describe that. So when you got to the the, the map, it was so exciting you know, that, that's it, you know, oh my God, you're out of the submarine. You could you send you whatever hell as long as you're out of that yellow submarine or the cells. And anyway, I'll get to the map. And I think the first time I got to the map is when I was actually sentenced because I think I was in the in the submarine for, I don't know, 14 days or, or, or so. And then I was bailed, I think, again. And then I re-offended while, again while I was on bail. And then that's when now I've been sentenced and sent to the map. And I was only two days into the map, and I was uh, very fortunate that um, that yeah I got sent to an open camp straight from the map, which is I was really fortunate with that. And but yeah. So where was that? Uh, I was got sent to Beechworth. Yep. And um. And what was your sentence? I got twelve months on the bottom, eighteen on top. Yep. Yeah. And you served? Uh, I served twelve to the day, but um, but that was yeah that was that was not an easy process. I mean, first time in prison. Um, and you know, just standard. I go to Beechworth and I stuffed it up within a month, and I got tipped out of there. I got kicked out of that prison and sent to Middleton, which is it could have been worse. But um, you could have been. But that's where that was the that was, that was my wake up call. That you know, prison is not a game. You know, it's not a. So yeah. Beechworth's a C grade prison. Yeah, it's uh, open, open camp. camp. Yeah. And what and compared to Middleton, what would that be like? It was. Uh, it's kind of an open. It's not an open camp. It's same rating. It's still. I think it's a C rating, but it's. Middleton's got a, a wall, you know, it's more prison-like. But, um, yeah, but I, I stuffed that up and it was it was a really bad mistake and I just remember, um, you know, 
I just I just kept thinking to my sister, you know, I mean, it's bad enough the humiliation of being in jail. Now I'm in jail and I get, you know, I, I get a really good, you know, a really good opportunity to serve my time at Beach Road. And then I, I stuff that up again, you know, because I get involved in contraband and other things. And I mean, I just lifted the bar for new ways of disappointing my family. Like I've really like taken it, you know, I've really excelled all of a sudden, you know. So I was in this situation where I was like, no, I need to redeem myself here. You know, I really need to do well. I need to impress my family and show them that I can do really well. And it was sort of the same thing as when I was outside. So I've got these prisoner friends who are really bad news. But at the time, I thought they were my best mates in the world. And then I got my family outside. And I'm on an absolute mission to impress everybody. So I'm pestering the guards. I'm trying to work seven days a week. I'm trying to do multiple jobs. I'm trying to do study. I'm absolutely driving the guards insane, but trying to do the good, the right things. And mm. I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can. So then every time I call my sister and my mum, I've got something good to tell them. Yeah. But it doesn't work like that in jail. You know, trying to do the good, right thing in jail is not trying to do the right thing because the officers look at you like, mate, what are you trying to have us on? This guy's trying to manipulate us. No one's that nice. Yeah. But when you're really trying your best, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to be nice and you're, you're trying to do this program and that program. They're like, mate, what's your game here? Like, at the same time, the prisoners are like, mate, what are you doing? You know, they call it you're trying to good bloke yourself. That's the, the word in jail. You know, what are you trying to good bloke yourself? You know, but I really was trying. I was trying to impress the prisoners by doing all the contraband stuff with them on the side. But I was trying to do all the programs I remember pestering them to get into the violence program. They're like, mate, you're not a violent offender. They don't apply to you. You can't do them. And I'm like, but but just if you need to make up the numbers, I'll come in the class because I want to do it. And I remember going NA and AA and I was absolutely running mad in there and I was just trying to do my best. I was trying to redeem yeah. myself in my family's eyes, trying to impress the prisoners and trying to really, I was trying to impress the guards. Too. I was trying to do the right thing. Like I really was. I mean, I remember working three jobs and not getting paid for two of them and the prisoners are like mate what are you doing that for yeah and i wasn't saying to them that i want to impress the, my family impress the guards i was like oh man i just want to kill time but in my mind i was trying to impress my family and i was hoping that by doing well in prison that the, that the, somehow the news would filter through to my sister oh mate your brother's doing really well you know what i mean so i was back in the same game that when i was outside like you're torn between these different factors look and, looking back on it do you think that your behavior, which sounds like it was quite erratic and, and quite trying to, you know, very um, trying to please and, and trying to, you know, that, do you think that your behavior um, within that prison um, set you up with people maybe, you know, taking advantage or seeing that there's a, a spot here where, you know, they can kind of, you know, scratch a little bit at the surface and, and get, get to you a little bit was... Now I could be wrong. Was that was that the case, or did, did, did looking back at it now, can you see see some of that? Yeah, a hundred percent. That's the case. As a saying in prison, you know, water finds its own level, and whatever you go into prison trying to find, you're going to find it. So when I got tipped from Beechworth and I made my, my made my way to Milton, I was determined never to use drugs again. You know, and I was on a mission. You know, and at Middleton, it's, it's a weird sort of divide. Like the prison is split by this hub, and then you have got your sort of your users and stuff who were they're sort of put in these cells in these units on the on the left and then you've got your more serious criminals you know your you know uh, yeah. that who would never use drugs in a million years but yeah you're serious drug dealers and they're sort of on this right side so i found my way to that right side. so i was in a really good unit i was with these dr guys that would really look down onto drug users and but but they're really clever so they knew i was determined never to use drugs again so i was with them and i was 
kind of really happy because again I found that well at least I'm not like those guys yeah and and they played on that they they knew I was determined to study they knew I was determined to leave prison and and never to use again and never do the wrong thing again and they played on that they're like yeah yeah you come hang out with us you know we're not drug users and you know we, we, you know we do business the, the right way and and yeah and I, I got manipulated into and I mean it's it's not their fault I, I allowed myself to be manipulated by those guys but they're clever they see you know they see the the what you're determined to do and they sort of they 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 mold you into you, you know what i mean like yeah yeah and yeah, that's it's it, it's a hard place. Yeah, and it's a it's a place where politics, very different politics, uh, walk themselves yeah. in. You know, and and you know, people have a lot of time to study people. You know, they're probably some of the best studiers of people in the in the business. You know, and um, if you really think about it, because they just watch people all day. It's people watching, isn't it? And behavior watching and so forth as well. Going back to your family, Shame, did you make that phone call? To, did you tell your parents? That, that this is what happened to Mohammed. How so, how yeah. did that come about? And so then- my dad had passed away by then, but it's, so was my mum. And actually, uh, no, I didn't. T- I actually didn't tell her. Right. So we had planned. Um, my parents had a place in um, uh, one in the morning to Peninsula, and we had already planned to go. And he was in prison, and I was like, I don't even know how to tell her. I like, I'd actually can't even say it. Um. And so we go to the Mornington Peninsula and my cousins come along and I tell my cousin, she can't have a poker face, that one, honestly. I told my cousin, <laughs> I said to her, hey, I just need you to know this. And she goes, she's she just like, what? Anyway, again, we have this conversation and my mum and my auntie are in the kitchen and she can't absorb what I've just told her. Get out. We get out into the backyard and she's talking to me and my mum notices there's something going on. Yeah. And she says to my cousin, hey, what's happening? And my cousin turns around and just goes, blurt, and tells her. And I'm like, okay, that wasn't the plan. <laughs> like a Band-Aid straight like, off. Just like I wasn't ready. I, yeah. Like so, I, yeah. I was never going to be ready. No, but, no. But it was just like and maybe that's how it had to happen. But I just could not bring myself to tell her and um, literally within an hour packed up and came back to Melbourne Um, and my mum probably I'd say cried daily until we showed up in court for his um, hearing or sentencing or whatever and I, I I don't think we ever um, thought he would get that long. Yeah. And, you know, when you, again, when you're in the system, you kind of go, oh, but look at this person and they got this much and this person for this, you know, you just constantly that's your reference point. And the, uh, and the, the magistrate um, so initially gets community corrections order and then that doesn't work out so well and he gets the 18 months within 12 months non-parole. And my mum just loses it in court completely on the floor, six G4S guards trying to pick her up off the floor. I don't even remember. I think the magistrate couldn't cope and she left, got up and left the courtroom. Complete and utter devastation. I look at him. He's kind of dropped. He was standing but dropped in his seat in the box where the... 
and, um, you know, eventually pick my mum up and take her home and go and drop off some clothes and and you kind of just keep going. Meanwhile, you've got this... I know you're thinking about it. And the irony was the following day I had a meeting at work and it was at the same court. And the person chairing the meeting was that magistrate. And I just like... And she's looking at me in the meeting and I'm going, we don't recognise each other. Like I'm just, this is so unbelievable that we're just, you and I know where we've been but we're just not going to talk about it. Yeah. And we have the meeting and we move on and he goes to um, MAP, I think, I don't know, and then, and then eventually moves to Beechworth. But it was just, I, I didn't tell her. It's no. just like... How do you tell her? How do we, How do you? Because you never actually quite think things are that bad. Yeah, it must be hard for you to hear that as well, Mohammed. It must have been a hard experience, you know, as you say in that court. I can only imagine, you know, what it felt for all is in different ways. But it must have been really hard for you as well. Yeah, I reckon if you asked that magistrate, it would have been one of her memorable moments. Like it was yeah. just, and this is where the cultural thing comes into it, right? You've got, again, I'm not saying that, um, so when you you see people kind of walk into court, they hear a sentence and they compose, they seem composed and they walk out. But I think some there are some cultural things about that add to the shame and add to the stigma of it all that, you know, again, think about it, a migrant family, they come to Australia, they uplift, they move everything, they want better for their kids and then this happens and then it all feels like, I can only imagine my mum kind of going, "What was it? Why? Why did we do all of this? Like, what, what, yeah. what was the point of it all?" Because for her, the shame of it and the and the shock of it and the devastation of it, it just you couldn't measure it. Do you think that before that incident, being part of it, you would see things that way, or you would kind of say, "Yeah, you need to be aware of this," but when actually living it. It 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 it, it um, enhanced that whole feeling and so forth, and made it stronger. Do you feel afterwards? Like what I'm trying to get is like, mm. how did you change in your in your kind of like this is how I saw things before this yeah. in my work capacity, um, and you obviously would have know like you know as you say cultural and shame and all that. But when you actually then saw this and it was it was it was you it was your, it was your life, did that then give you a different perspective a little bit more? Yeah, I think. Well, there's two things. There's that clash of cultures around me saying to my mum, it's okay, it's going to be okay. It's really, what do you do? Like you can't hide from the world. But at the same time I start going to work and all of a sudden I'm thinking about the families and all of a sudden I'm thinking what would what, what should we be doing for the families? How do we make things easier for people to find information? Why is it so hard? And everything and your reference point becomes your own experience. So so like now I work in kind of mental health and I kind of and lived experience is a big thing, right? Yeah. Having peer workers and lived experience is a huge thing, having people who have had that experience and coming into the system and telling and, and you know, telling us how it feels. That you don't have that in the justice system. The idea of having someone who was previously part of the system, and there are a few people that have managed to get their way in and be real advocates, but um, that idea that someone who's been in the system, I mean, if you've been in the system and you want to go in and work in the system, you can't. Your criminal record prevents you from doing that. But actually, all of a sudden, lived experience in the justice seems, system seems all the more important, right? Because mm. how can you understand it if you haven't been through it? Like, I thought I knew it. And now I'm going through it and I feel like I don't know it anymore. And Fascinating. I just, you know, and even now I think about, 
um, you know, things and I kind of go, you know, even spent convictions, I think about that stuff that's out now and I go, yep, that's the right thing to do because if you want to spend money on rehabilitation, then you've got to give people a chance. You can't spend money on rehabilitation then not employ them, right? It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't insist on the stigma but then say you want to help people at the same time. It's, it doesn't work that way. Did any party have a little bit of, um, I'm trying to use the word, it's not resentment, but a little bit of um, frustration or, you know, did you begin to to kind of challenge things a little bit more or did you just kind of go, oh, I'm just understanding it now and it gives me a better understanding for the work that we do, what we need to do? Mm-hmm. Or did party just go, you know, you had a little bit of a chip about it or you started to get into you a little bit. Did it ever affect your walking kind of career or were you able to keep them so professionally and separate? You know, I kind of, um, as difficult as the system is, I think my experience, at, uh, correction, is there are good people working in that system for the right reasons. And I think had I not known that and had I not experienced those people and knew them and knew that every day they came in trying to do the right thing by the prisoners to say that to make sure they wouldn't come back, then I probably would have had that chip, but I didn't because I knew the people and I knew they were well intentioned and I knew that the system wasn't just about couldn't just be changed by those people. There's politics to it. There's you know what you the choices that any individual makes in getting there. No one wakes up in the morning and says my goal today is to go to prison. Just shit happens. Um, but I knew the people were good people and well intentioned, and I think if I didn't, if I if I was outside of the system, I would have been more angry. Mm. The fact that I was in it and knew the people meant that I could have a bit more of an appreciation of what they were trying to do. Didn't always work, but what they were trying to do at least. Nick, like many businesses out there, we're heading back into the office. Yes, we are, Mac. It means no more tracksuit pants, mate. And for you, actually wearing trousers. <laughs> But that's not the issue here, Mac. It's not. The issue is, I've been looking around a lot of businesses in the city lately. I've been in there. Were you allowed to be? Well, yes, I was invited in, Mac. (laughs) But one of the things that strikes me is sanitising bottles everywhere, on the edge of the tables and so forth, receptions and so forth. And and it's a need. We all need it. But it doesn't look good. Looks horrible. Doesn't look, doesn't have any style. So you know what we're going to do about it? What are we going to do? We are already doing it. We are making sanitising stations made from handcrafted wood in our prisons by our young people. They are stylish and they hit the need of every business. You can get them tailor-made. You can get the wood that you have on your reception or in your offices. We can use that to actually make them. And every time you use these things, you're going to sanitise in style. I'm loving it. Who thought of that name? Well, Mac, I'm pretty humble, so it was me. Um, (laughs) So you have style. Okay. Yeah, but this is the thing. If we get businesses to buy these things and fit out their whole offices, we will create multiple jobs. It's that simple and it's needed. So if you're a business out there, go to www.ymcarebuild.org.au and sanitise and style. Talk me through a little bit before we get to the visit part. Talk me through a little bit of um, how your time kind of played out. Well, you know, the, the mission that I started at Beechworth sort of continued at Middleton where I was really on a mission to do the best I possibly could, you know, to, to you know, impress my family and do all the right things. And, and the good thing here now is that the bad crowd I was involved in, they weren't 
involved in contraband. They were the really serious guys. I mean, how I got into the best unit is one of the guys who was doing 15 years. He was doing a uh, uh, a Bachelor of Arts. So I, he was really struggling with this. And I said to him, I'll help you. I'll help you with the course. I'll help you with certain subjects, you know, the the science subjects. And he was doing some psychology subjects. I said, I'll help you with that. And he goes, all right. So I, I got a room in the best unit there. Yeah, pretty much in the whole prison. So, so, uh, and and I spent the time doing the same thing. You know, I remember would go into the hub and I'd look at all the forms and I'd be like, "What program haven't I applied?" You know, what you know, what's this form? And I would just fill out every form and I'd put them in the box. And I was really an absolute pest to the, the 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 officers. But in my view, I thought I was doing the right thing. Again, you know, I was trying my absolute. I was trying my guts out, trying to do everything I possibly could. And and that's really how I spent the time. You know, I spent them doing the uh, what the prisoner called the walks and talks with the uh, serious prisoners about you know all these plans and stuff we had for when we got out and 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 I spent it you know just doing programs and 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 working and 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 that's how it went but as the time went the 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 relationships really developed with these serious with these serious guys you know and, and the friendships grew and we were cooking and eating together and um you know and um uh, and I was speaking to their families on the phone and you know these relationships were developing and and I, what I knew now, what I know now, and I didn't know then that they were, they were not good. I mean, they were going to get me in a lot more trouble. Do you think you're doing all the right things, but there was a missing factor that you weren't doing the right thing for yourself? Yeah, yeah, and I and and I really wasn't. You know, um, I was just trying to impress my family. I was trying to impress the officers. I was trying to. I was trying to. You know, I looked at it as I was at a company now, and I was trying to get a promotion. You know, that's how I was when I worked at the company for five years. I was try, I was a workaholic. I tried so hard to get those promotions, and I had that mentality. I mean, I think that's like your question that you're asking because really, like I, I was actually just thinking that before hearing Muhammad speak about he was doing it for everybody else but himself, mm. and so you know, time has passed, and you know. And, 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 you know, if I think about and I see him now, it, the, the point at which you stop doing things for other people because you want to see value in their eyes and this point at which you start to value yourself, that's when it's a game changer, right? That's when you see, you know, you're doing things for yourself, for your own sanity and sustainability, if, you know. Um, but if you're doing things for other people, it doesn't. It doesn't actually. It's not sustainable. You can't keep it going. You can't keep keep living a life where all you, you know. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people find themselves in the system because they're lacking that sense of purpose. They've had really hard, difficult things, whether it's abuse or dysfunctional family. I mean, we didn't have a dysfunctional family, but you know, you just it's finding a purpose in yourself and being able to carry that and and. You know, it's not just Muhammad, but, uh, you know, lots of people in the system, even, um, you know, they just kind of, you talk about, if, even if you just ask them what they what do they see as valuable about themselves, they can't even answer that question. There's this fundamental thing that's called a being human that is you, you see your own self-worth and you find that that is a massive kind of, it's a vacuum of people in of people in, in the system, whether they're on orders or whether they're in prison, is that they actually don't have regard for themselves. They don't value themselves and that's what drives them a lot of the times to make those choices because yeah, they want to fit in. They want to be part yeah. of the community. They want someone to... Sounds a bit corny, but no, but want to love them, like value. It's right, and in in our education course, one of the activities we look at values, and we get them to list their top three values. And I can say, 
starts off, everyone says family is number one. Everyone says honesty is number two. And everyone says loyalty is number three. When we ask them about it, they go, oh, yeah, love my family and everything like that. And, oh, yeah, got to be honest, you know, honest to no one wants a rat. And then loyalty, they can speak for ages on loyalty. And that loyalty is all about other people, mm. not loyal to themselves. So, yeah, it's one of those learning curves that I think um, when the penny drops about themselves and being true to themselves, they can start to make real positive changes. Yeah. And because it's exhausting, right? How mm. exhausting is it that you worry, I worry about what Mick thinks and I worry about yeah. what you think and what my mum thinks. Like, you know, if I think about the fact that I didn't tell my mum, why didn't I? Because the exhaust, like, yeah. not only the shame, but like, what do you, how am I going to kind of deal with that? There's, yeah. there's the exhaustion that comes with how do you actually, um, you know, keep people happy? That's right. And it's, I think there's an irony of it as well. Like, I think that you, Mohammed, probably would be going, this is how I think people see me. And it's probably the complete opposite because they're seeing something that you you think that this is how like, it sounds like how you are acting and what you were doing. This is how they will perceive me and see me. And they're actually probably looking at it going, that's the complete opposite, you know, um, by what's happening as well. Now, talking about how people see you, how was that visit when you when – you, um, Right, you know, when you saw when you brought your mum in to, to visit Muhammad and I'm I'm interested in how you felt when that happened as well, because that would have been a really, you know, um difficult I think process and time or uh, as well. So talk is true from like either of you and how that kind of Honestly went. I don't remember the visit. I think I was just in task mode. I was just <laughs> yeah. walking my mum through security <laughs> yeah, yeah. and make sure you got your license and make yeah. sure you yeah. you know, you sign in and you know, my mum doesn't sign like she's like she does but you know she doesn't write english so she's just coaching her through a signature i don't actually remember it to be honest you go uh, i i remember them coming in at at beechworth and the visits at beechworth i mean i didn't what i know now is that they're pretty you know they're pretty easy going the visit at beechworth because you're in a big room yeah you don't have to wear the monkey suit you can just walk out in your nice clothes in you know <laughs> your tracksuit and your white t-shirt but um yeah, so I I just remember walking out and seeing him there and in, in a big cafe. I don't really remember too much. I remember I was I was I was in a good mood. I was excited. You know, I was excited to get the visit. And to be honest, from memory, I was excited to eat food from the cafeteria because it's not like the food you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. in the, I was everyone kept telling me about chicken schnitzel. I, you know what I mean? In prison, food is everything. That's your whole life is based around food. So I was I can't actually remember. To be honest, I remember them sitting there. I think my auntie was there, and it was the first time I'd seen them. And so it was a positive visit. It was, um, yeah. Look, my mum and my auntie. I think they and, put on a brave face. Yeah, I think just for yeah. my benefit, I, I could yeah. see through it. But I mean, you're driving home from Beechworth three hours. So there's a lot you hear afterwards in the car <laughs> yeah, yeah. from your mum and your auntie about what's that like and what's this. You would have answered all your right questions. And did he, yeah, he looked all right, you know. Oh, yeah, he's wearing his T-shirt. It was nice and clean, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you kind of think that's what they're latching onto, right, because that's what keeps them sane between the next the visit. And then, and then I think at one point, like I went a few times to visit and then it just turned out to be not to be a great idea for me to go because I was kind of in the system. And, and, and so my mum, so I would drop off my mum and my auntie to visit and I'd hang out. And when you went to Middleton, I'd hang out at a cafe down the road. 
and just wait for them to finish the visit and, and come home because a bit more of a time limit at, at Middleton for the visits. Yeah. I'm glad they noticed the white T-shirt because... Uh, yeah, they did. You did a lot of work on that one? Good idea. Yeah, yeah. In pr- it's a big thing to get your T-shirts really white for the prison. You know, you're soaking in your nappy sand. Yeah. And you know, it's, it is that really f- the funny thing that you kind of remember about, you know, being in the season. You kind of go, like, God, if these guys put their smarts into the right places, <laughs> you'd kind of, you know, they'd be somewhere else. Um, yeah. Because it's... Just all all sorts of creativity. Oh, massive creativity in prison. It's, yeah. it's one of the, yeah, a lot of entrepreneurial uh, yeah, yeah, tendencies there. You, you know, like they find skills that they never thought they had. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Down in our gym in the prison, uh, you can see who's got visits and everything like that because they won't be playing the sports, but they'll be nice, freshly shaven, yeah. clean clothes, sitting on the sideline waiting for half time to then go up into mm-hmm. the visit centre. Yeah, interested to go forward a little bit now so you know you um have been in prison and you saved your time and you're you're due to be released or you are released and so forth so talk us through a little bit of that and being released and and how you what life was like for you and how you went back into the community um well before i got released i mean there was a little bit of prep work with these guys that was hanging out with the 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 people that they were connecting you to and so forth did you have a belief that this was going to be um, like they're going to support you legal bound work? Yeah, yeah. 100%. yeah you believe that you were going to have you know connection to the outside, they're going to set you up and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and in prison, they tell you they go, mate. You know, the second you use outside, that's it. You're out. You're out of the loop. You know, they tell you all this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I want. That's what my family wants. I just didn't realize what was going on. You know, I was, you know. I, I let myself be be had, I guess. And we won't go into it because we know yeah. it's not, you know, we don't want to go into that and put you in yeah. a situation um, from that and, and there's things still playing out as well. So, but we can we speak a little bit about like where you're at now yeah. at the moment? So so obviously you've got involved, you've you've got into a job, it's, it's not worked out the way it is and you've been caught up in something again and you are now facing, um, you, you were facing charges um, yeah. and... While you'd finished your parole or on parole? No, no, I'd finished. You'd finished your parole, but now you're facing new charges and so forth, and you're going through this again. So you've come out, and 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 your life is, you know, what you thought was going one way, but now it's suddenly taking a turn and another way. Yeah. So, um, are you currently on bail? Yep. 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 And can you tell us what you're kind? Of, what's 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 face like? Not not the actual charge. We don't want to go into that. Yeah. But what it. What's facing you now at the moment? Like, what? Where are you at? It, well, it's it's a it's a whole different it's it's a whole different situation for me now. I mean, um, the weird thing is, I, I think I finally got my life to where I want it to be in terms of the stuff that I'm doing, and and I've got this thing hanging over my head, and and um, and yeah, I mean, I I, fi- I think I finally found my my calling to do the things that I want to do. So doing a lot of charity work and working on this and on that, but I've still got this thing hanging over my head. And um, and yeah, I'm 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 in a really difficult situation. Yeah. And you've got a job. You're doing. You, you know, your life's. You're, you're yeah. healthy. You look. You look extremely healthy. And 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 that. And and, and everything is good. You're not. You, you've not used and everything like that. So, you are really in a good place. Yep. And you have been. And you have been for the last while. Yeah. So I've got a um a plea hearing later this year, um, and I I, I could be potentially facing another an, another jail term and I'm not I'd feel like that was the absolute end of the world you know all the work everything I've done to get to where I am now that's all gone you know I'd have to go back and start from scratch you know I'm studying I'm doing 
I'm doing courses, I'm I'm doing volunteer work, I'm trying to put this program into place and, you know, any jail term right now, that's, I don't know what, I just honestly the the thought of the thought of that is just too horrifying. I don't know what I don't know what that's going to do, you know, and and I'll be shattered because I'm finally where I want to be, you know. I I do volunteer work and I absolutely love it. It's my medicine, you know. I go there, you know. I I'm feeling a little bit down whatever and I do go do the volunteering work and and it picks me up. That's it's I can't imagine I could ever do go on with my life without that because it's what makes me feel good about myself. Yeah, yeah and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say, mate. I'd... It's an interesting thing that that comes to to mind is that you are in the community, positively contributing. You're working. You're doing, you know, voluntary voluntary work. You you know, charity work. You're doing everything you can. You're healthy and everything else. Yet you could potentially, and you know, the system could potentially put you back into custody. And for me, I don't know, and I, I could, I'm just saying what I see here at the moment. You know, myself and Mark and have worked in, in this field for a long time and worked with lots of people in re- rehabilitation and who get their lives back on track. And that's what we're all about. We're on second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances if it needs. But you always know there's a point where someone is taking that and has taken it, you know. You strike me as someone that's in that spot, you know. You don't strike me as someone that, you know, I can see, um, you know, Going backwards, you can only see that you're probably going forwards. So it must be hard. I'm probably might be more directing this to you, um, Shamer, as well. Like it's you know from your time in corrections and seeing this, and now it must be difficult to see this because we know that you know it's going to cost a lot of the taxpayers money to put you know if if Mohammed did go in, it's going to cost a lot of money for someone who to to all points and, and is pointing out a really positive life going now now and going forward. How does it make that? How does that sit with? Yeah, like it's a it's a really kind of un, uncomfortable space because you know people need to be accountable for what they've done. Yeah, but there's lots of ways that you can do that, right? And you know, there's kind of this. If I think about, um, you know, recidivism rates, they're going up. You know, we're building more prisons, but recidivism rates are going up. So something's not working. So when you see that people have been able to you know, turn their lives around whilst they're in the community, still be accountable, you kind of think, well, what's the point of sending them back in? What's the point of, um, you know, what message are you sending about the second chance and the third chance and what message are you sending about, you know, um, rehabilitation and what, and, and is that money that, you know, is, is that better spent on things in the community? Because all the evidence tells you, all the research tells you that if you can support people with jobs and you know, living skills and housing for those that are homeless and mental health and, you know, drug and alcohol programs, all the evidence says that if you do those things, you'll get a better outcome, you know, and, you know, that you can do some of that stuff in prison, but you can't do all of it because it's just not, not that kind of environment. You can educate people in prison, but it doesn't mean they'll actually take get up and get a job in whatever you you teach them. But so I guess it's kind of a thing about I feel like saying – rethink the system now it's time to kind of like my experience tells me doesn't always work yes um it's not not everybody is at you know the stage that Muhammad is at in terms of his own rehabilitation but it makes me feel like like I feel like I need you know on that day when he goes into his plea hearing I need to say to the judge stop what you're doing just think about this carefully because actually you're undoing 
a whole lot of rehab and treatment and all the things that we spend a lot of money on and we hope it works. And then when you see it working, why reverse that? Mm. So different ways that you can hold people accountable. Prison isn't the only way. No, no, you're right. And it's roughly like $120,000 a year to house. Probably oh, more. easily. Probably one. I think it's more, more now. More. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's more yeah. now. And, and that, yeah. And if you take into account then all the costings of the court and everything else that's on top yeah. of that, like it's a fair chunk. Yeah. You know? And you think about the stuff that's not measured. So the housing of yeah. someone and the food and whatever. But you think about the institutionalization and you think about, you know, here's someone in Mahamba that went in the first time came out with some pretty not great connections and we pay the cost of that even further. So actually what do you what what's to be achieved by being in there and institutionalizing people further and actually um, you know it's that kind of thing that we used to talk about in when we put groups together, the contamination. Like you don't put a low risker with a high risker. You know, you just don't do that sort of thing. So what happened? What are you doing when you're putting people in prison if they're already on their rehabilitation journey or if there's a bit of hope for them but you put them in the wrong unit? Yeah. And then what happens? It's the young person versus the more established person in the system and how do you navigate that? Like it just seems counter with now with the benefit of experience it kind of seems completely counterintuitive yeah and I, and I kind of agree with you. I think there's a lot of work like we obviously work in prisons and we work in the community and we've seen all of this for many many years and I, and I kind of agree with you and I do agree with you on that as well like I, I think there could be more done and, and we've seen it some some fantastic programs like you know the peer programs that do in prisons now with the prisons where you know people like yourself Mohammed, when you are forced going in you know are People identify that, but they identify for the right reasons. So they're over to you, you know, in your first day, your first week, just just saying, listen, you know, this is what I do. This is the role that we play. Um, and, you know, we can support you or help you. If you need any, just ask us. Just be mindful of this and mindful of that. Um, and, you know, I'm out here to talk. And, and you know that that's their role. So there's no hidden agenda. You know, um, which I can imagine is very hard. So, so automatically, you know, they can kind of help you navigate or help other people navigate. And we've done it. We've done an episode on this, and it's, it's super interesting. But I think so, so valuable and so needed um, in the prison because they're helping hundreds and hundreds of thousands of prisoners who are coming in first time to just kind of just say, just take a breath. This is what you need to look out for. This is what you probably shouldn't do. This is what you probably are doing that's really good. And this is where you need to kind of get involved and this is how I can help you. Yeah, whereas, you know, from what we've just heard, from your experience, you've gone in and you've just gone in, you've just basically ran into that prison and just ran around like just going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this, where it's really someone going, hey, just, you know, just take a second. Let's think about you. Let's think about what's good for you right now and what's good for your prison term, you know, because um, a lot of people go in thinking this is what they need to do. Um, and what's the biggest advice everyone says? And um, the number one advice any prisoners always say, just be quiet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, just, yeah, you just, you know, don't go in and try and impress, just be quiet. But it's to how, like, I, I don't know that experience. So it's unfair for me to say totally what you've experienced because you are you and you handle that and that. And there's no right or wrong to me in that way. It's just what you felt you had to do. But, you know, we always think that we just, you know, if we're in that position that you just have someone that can just put the hand on your shoulder and go, hey, just, just watch this as well. Do you feel that would have helped you in that point? Or was that even happening and you just thought you were just too far out of the way to go, I don't don't really need that? Um, yeah, I mean, th that would have been helpful. But the thing is, it's 
in my mind, anyone who told me to slow down, I would have been like, slow down, what are you talking about? I'm doing the right thing. It's not like yeah. I was in there trying to smuggle and trying to, you know, trying to, you know, um, you know, scam or whatever. I was in there trying to do programs. You know, I wanted. I was trying to enroll in in distance education. I, I was trying to work. I was trying to find a job on the weekend and then find a job during the week. And then I actually tried to do volunteer work and have the guys with English. So if anyone said to me, "No, nah, no, nah, mate, take it easy," I'd been like, "What? What are you? You know, what are you talking about?" And mm-hmm. and the officers were telling me, "Listen, mate, you you really need to slow down." <laughs> and I was and I was like, "No, no, no, but I, I can do this." And you know, and yeah. and it would have been helpful. But the things I was trying to do, I. But I think it's kind of that thing about. Well, getting in early, and we always talk about you know, you, it's it's in anything, right? It's early intervention, and it's that prevention stuff. But um, being able to explain, so when a prison officer says to you, "Slow down, mate," you kind of interpret that as I'm just being annoying to you, and now you just want me out of your way. Yeah, correct. Whereas if you've got someone who can explain to you, actually, slow down because this is the journey that's ahead of you. It's going to be hard. You're going to meet bad people. You're going to, you know, like whatever. Um, that comes from a different place. But when it's said to you by a prison officer, you just think, I mean, and and knowing and knowing Muhammad is kind of, you know, mind con- constantly racing. And again, remember, there's this thing about, oh, I've got to impress my family. I've got to show them that I can make this work. The His motives and the motives of the prison officers almost feel like they're clashing. You're just trying to get me out of your way, but I just want to prove to my family. So all those things are running. But actually having someone that can say, this is the journey that you're about to go on, this is why you should slow down or this is why you should do this and pace yourself. But in reality, we know if you do five different programs at the same time, there's no physically it's not humanly possible to absorb all, all of that content no. and be in prison at the same time. Like it's just yeah. because of the dynamic of being in prison and the kind of, I want to say, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's an unnatural environment, you know. Try That's right. And make it look nice, but it, it's not. And it's not a natural environment. So how do you do five different programs trying to get it like that inevitably is a recipe that's not sustainable? It would have, it would have, I mean, to think about it now, it would have, I would have taken it on board hearing it from another prisoner a lot better than hearing Mm -hmm. it from the officers. Like, like, you know, sis was saying is that you hear it from an officer and you're like, you know, mate, what you know? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to? You he says trying to figure it out. You're thinking, are you trying to yeah. play this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just don't want me to be in your way. I'm yeah. being a pest yeah, to yeah, you, yeah. so get out of my way, kind of thing. But but other prisons, they don't tell you. every every prison in there. Generally, ninety nine point, they're in they're in it for themselves. If they're coming to tell you about something, it's because they either need something from you or they need you to do something or you know what I mean. No one. There are certain exceptions, but no one's really coming to have a conversation with you for your benefit. It's everyone's in it for something for themselves. Generally, there are I, there, I have seen exceptions of that, and and I know there is, but yeah. it's not it's not a common place. You know, people don't care about you. You know, I mean, I, I'd go as far as to say the officers care a lot more about you than other prisoners do. So yeah, yeah. Um, just interested in your family um, now and 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 so forth. Like, but. When this was all happening and so forth, how how openly was this discussed in your communities and, and family? Because going back to that cultural um, part of it as well, which you know, um, was it discussed? Um, was Muhammad and and I mean this tongue in cheek? Were you on a holiday? Um, where you you know was it like you know because you you know did your mother have anyone to talk to? Or was it just really kept in house? Oh, it was complete shut down. Yeah. 
so the only per- only people really that knew was my auntie who visited with him and her kids, so my cousins. Um, my my not even my kids knew. So, and my mum did definitely didn't tell anybody. And he definitely was on a working holiday of some sort for a very long time. And my mum, in her wisdom, like got confused between which country she'd sent him to. And some of my kids would say, I thought he was over here. No, he's over here. <laughs> like you kind of, and then they'd say things like, it's just absurd the way sometimes you try and cope with some of this stuff, right? You know, and again, it's, this is a cultural thing. Um, maybe in Western cultures, you kind of go, just say it as it is. Yeah, in the Arabs you don't do that. Like it's a completely different thing. It's about, you know, big noting and, and managing reputations and managing impressions and hierarchy and all of that jazz and stigma and all of that. But, you know, my mum would say, oh, he's gone to, I don't know, I think at one point she said Singapore. And I said, what the hell would you send him to Singapore? Like, you know, and then she'd say, and then and then another time I'd say, oh, she'd say he's in Queensland and I'm going, oh, just keep your story straight. Like if you're yeah, going to give yeah, a story, yeah. keep it straight. But more confusing for my kids because then the kids would say, oh, can we call him? No, he doesn't have reception. Yeah. Like, the, the st- look, the, the story could go. It could from, go anywhere. It could go anywhere and it gets, you could tie yourself in knots and it's I'm not at, at all justifying that that's the way anyone should deal with it, but it's hard. It's too even today, even with what's happened, and even seeing you know Muhammad now, and you know he does. I you know w- with all that I see and all that I've seen, he, yeah, I reckon he does have his life back on track, and he does have it where he wants to be. It, it, you know that that I don't know how we would have dealt with it any other way apart from to bunker down and see no one so that you didn't even have anyone to tell he was in Singapore. Like, do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Because there's just no coming back from that. The community is sometimes harsh as we are in, the, you know, and they'll never forget it and they'll, and, and they'll always be suspicious. And so the question is, like, if you tell somebody and he gets his life back on track, no one will believe, like, will they believe that? Will they judge? Will they judge you forever? And what does that say about your parenting? Like, and my mum would say things like, "What did I do?" And so the the judgment from others about, "Oh, look what you did," because it's ultimately any parent is going to try. He's going to think back and try and figure out what did I do to cause this. You know, I think any parent would, you know, necessarily going to blame yourself ultimately, but any parent is going to ask themselves that question. Yeah, and I think until you're in that position, you don't know how you're going to act as a family. And and, and as you say, you got that layer of, of cultural thing around that as well. So it, it's, it's it'll be different for everyone in, in mm. many different ways. So I don't think anyone says that's right or wrong. You just deal with it how you do, and best get through yeah. it how you do. Yeah. And uh, do, you, do you, sorry, go. No, I was just going to say, and even when I say to my mum, like relatives overseas, people that she really felt comfortable with and would otherwise confide in, and yeah, my mum, you know, she's pretty religious person to, you know, say to her, oh, you know, tell them to pray for, pray for, pray for us, pray for Muhammad, you know. She'd say, oh, no, they don't know, you know, because even that she couldn't fathom yeah, tell, yeah. telling. Muhammad, does that weigh in you a little bit? Does it like, do you, you know, it must be really hard sometimes to hear this stuff. And I know, you know, Shame is not saying that in a bad way and your family wouldn't be, but it, you, you, it, what's happened has happened. You can't, you know, can't erase it, unfortunately, you know, can't go back. Does it does it weigh on you um, 
what's happened from your actions from for, for you know everyone else that's that's been hurt by it and, and and their lives have been changed yeah of course i mean how can it not you know daily you know living with that sort of regret it's it's hard but um i, I can't do anything about it now you know but it's it's brutal i mean yeah <laughs> i mean it's seeing my mum my mum looked like she aged about you know 10 or 20 years after i got out you know um it, it's it's really difficult but what do i do you know i just have to I just have to start again and try to do better this time around. You know, what can I do? It's all you can do, mate. And 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 you know, you're not the first person that's ever made mistakes. You're not going to be the last person that's ever made mistakes. And families go through certain things, you know. And it doesn't mean that your mistakes make you a bad person. They just they just led to bad decisions, you know. And and I, you can tell by. You know, I love your, your your sister and, and your family. You got people that are around you as well, and you're doing everything that you can, and you're doing everything right. You know, you're not you're not in denial of it. You're not hiding from it. You know, you're speaking today, which is going to help so many people as well that will be in similar situations to you as well. So, um, you know, I can imagine it's difficult, but I think it would be even more difficult if you weren't doing the things you're doing right now. You know, and everyone has, everyone has the greatest thing about life is you have the ability to change. You got the ability to do it again. And you got the ability of making people, you don't forget, but it doesn't mean that you dwell on it. It doesn't mean it defines you. It doesn't mean whatever else. You know what I mean? It can make you even stronger as well. Um, so, yeah, so I really appreciate your, like, your honesty and, and your, your, you know, and I know it's, it's, it's a little bit emotional for you as well. But, um, yeah, you know, that's, what we, that's the business we're in is about making sure people understand there's a second chances and people can change and just giving them the ch- chance to do that and don't, don't continually judge them all the time on it. And I think, you know, like, as you say, it doesn't define them. Like, it's just a point in time. That's right. And, I, you know, again, when I was talking about all the people that work in the system, I think they're the people that really believe that. Like, this is just a point in time, otherwise you wouldn't wake up and go to work and do this work. Um, you know, and he's been a pain in the ass, but, you know, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't swap him over for anyone. Sometimes right. I feel like a swap, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't swap. You know, like I think that's the that's the family support and connection that you that, you know shit happens. People do stupid things. People make do, do, people make bad choices. I don't I don't look at my brother and say that what he's done is who he is. Yeah. I just look at him as being. Yeah, it's sometimes who you are at a moment. It's not what it's not. It's just a moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And everyone has them decisions to make, and some make them. Some can be lucky in them decisions, some can be unlucky in them decisions, but you know. So um Shama, what really interested um as we as we come to the end of the interview, um what what would you like to see change? What could you see after being, you know, such a, a strong person in this um sector and so forth, um what what would you say if you could, you know, probably wave a magic wand or what would you like to see from your experience being as a family um, as a lived experience which is which is I think a great choice of words to a person who works in the sector as well if you could you know see this in a few years time what would you like to see the changes being made that could help um firstly I think more listening to more of what the families and the prisoners actually say about their experience I think there's a level of um, judgment in the system about we just don't listen to prisoners because they're manipulative or they they're only but they're actually there will be some really insightful things that they'll say about what their experience was and what changed what what was cha- what changed it for them and what didn't what sent them back into the 
what you know prison or offending and what what actually changed it for them and I remember speaking to someone who said to me that what changed it for me was when one prison officer asked me how I was and I felt like that question was genuine and then all of a sudden I felt like somebody cared and then he you know and he'd been a history in, in youth justice and then gone into the adult system and it just took one question and then that that was it. so hearing those kind of experiences mean that you know the caliber of people that you put in the day-to-day conversation in prison is important and I think thinking about what you can do outside the community, outside and in the community, before you send anyone into prison, one should not end it, underestimate the impact that has not only on the person but the family, the community, the cost, financial, social, psychological, all costs that come for the person in every layer around them, that it should only be a last resort. You know, I mean, there's lots of conversations about, um, you know, having certain sentences for certain offences, but not every person is the same. You can't apply a recipe to this. So actually to be, to genuinely treat each case as, as on its own merits and, and, not, and do everything you can to keep people out of prison. Yeah, well said. And I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mohammed, what do you feel as being a person who's been in prison, that could be done more, you know, for people that are in there? What could be what could be given more in there? What could be a different way of going about it that might have helped, you know, you or can help, you know, the the thousands of people that are incarcerated? Yeah, I, I think, I think like my sister was saying, I, it'd be really important getting uh, guys who had been in there before with the lived experience of being in jail, is getting them more involved in speaking to prisoners in, in jail or, or guys that were on bail. You know, or that young, you know, that young first-time offender. So let's say probably not 19, but, you know, between 21 and 35. Because if, if you go into prison at your first time is at 21 or at 40, it doesn't matter. That's your first time in prison. You're pretty much the same, you know. You might have a bit more maturity outside, but inside it's your fresh meat, you know. And that's what you call, you know, someone comes to prison, Freshy, you know, everyone gets that name, Freshy, you know. So I think it's getting guys who had been in prison to get a bit more involved and have and, and speaking to the guys, whether they come in as visitors or, or or get the opportunity to do some work in there. And that's ultimately what I would love to do in the future. I'm actually shattered. I heard before that my sister was saying that you can't, you won't get the clearance to work in prisons, which that's ultimately what I'd love to be doing in the future is to working with guys in there, but... Yeah, look, at I would like to think, and going on what the question I've asked, that that will change a little bit. In in as a, I think you yeah. use it like every circumstance and, and an individual approach to things probably needs to change in that way. You know, it is difficult, but it shouldn't be out of the question because, no, like, yeah, yeah. And I think it's like in my experience in the system, people have come in. Um, oftentimes it's been a long time since they've been in prison, so it's yeah. not like I was in yesterday, you know. But but I think actually that's. You know, you can take learnings from other areas like mental health where you say actually someone who struggles with mental health can still be a lived experience person in the mental health system and support someone who's in who's going through crisis. The fact that they've been they've got a mental illness themselves doesn't actually mean they don't have something useful to say. Just, yeah, exactly. It's exactly the opposite. So, you know, someone who's been in the system, someone who's been in and out and back in, like so much to learn from why that happened and and what we can do better. 100%. And that's what we do this podcast. We're curious. You know, we want people to tell us stories. People should, should hear it. Like, 
I could see you going in and speaking. I could see the value of you speaking, you know, about your experience because um, you've got a lot to share. And potentially you can support that person who was you at that point. And if it's just one person, who cares? That's, that's going to make a significant part in that person's life and their family's life. You know, which which I think is so honourable and I think is so is so required. So, um, you know, it's not so far fetched. Um, like hopefully down the line, that's something that if you want to, you know, um, progress into that, there will be opportunities for you to do that as well. But you know, um, even today, you speaking, both you speaking, it's it's so educational and so valuable that it will, you know, it will definitely help other people. Um, hopefully in the, in the same position that you're both in. Yeah, and I, and I think on on the other side, I think that. You know, just talking about the prison officers, which a lot of prisoners don't do favorably, but I can tell you the really good ones, they should, they really need that support. You know what I mean? Because prison officers, they walk a very fine line in there. You know, if they seem to be really good to you, then all of a sudden they're labeled as, you know, the crim lover and, you know what I mean? But they do really make a difference. Some of them, most of them were absolutely brilliant, but you can see some of them struggling with it. You know, they really want to help you. And, you know, so I really think they need a, a little bit of support and, you know, identifying the really good ones and giving them that support. Because, I mean, I came across some amazing people as prison officers that made my life, you know, that, you know, they, you know, just that, like my sister was saying, they ask you, you know, how are you? And they genuinely mean it or they see you doing something and they pull you aside and genuinely have that conversation with you. And, and that's not 100% of them, believe me, that's not 100%, but that, that's the, you know, the majority of them are, are really good like that. And I really think the really good ones need support. And the really bad ones need to be identified because they do quite a bit of damage, you know. But yeah, it's a really, really good point that you that you make. Um, before we finish, I ask a question to um, all our guests, and it goes back to I'm going to bring you right back to your childhood when you were younger, growing up. What did you want to be? Uh, on, honestly, I can't remember. I mean, I, I was listening to so much rap music and and you know watching so much horrible movies. You know, I think about it. I, I think you know. As far I think I, at one stage I wanted to be an engineer, but as far as back as I could remember, I wanted to be a gangster. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that nonsense that you hear from Tupac and Biggie, and you know that's that's what was in your mind. But as I got older, and you know, at uni, I, I mean, I wanted to be a scientist. You know, I really did. I really did. You know, I loved biology and and that sort of thing. And when I matured and I sort of realized what I wanted to do, I I really did want to work in in the field. You know, I did want to work as a civil engineer, and then I realized, you know. It was, you know, the maths yeah. and stuff, but then I really wanted to work in science. But um, so you went from gangster to scientist. Yeah, it's yeah. just. Yeah, you went from Tupac to scientist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. You went from Tupac to spitting atoms. There is actually a funny story where he made a, a model of a cell in in primary school and he, as a pizza. Yeah, oh. and it was at that point that I think one of the teachers, again in our parent teacher interviews that I went to, said. That was brilliant. Yeah, Mixing so. your love for food and yeah. your passion for science. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Shama, what about you? What, what, when you were young growing up, what did you want to uh, be? Well, you know, I really did always think I was going to be a lawyer um, until I kind of changed my mind at the 11th hour um, and decided to do psych. Um, but I don't know that I kind of had a, had a recipe, but I think one of the things that I always kind of think back um, and I used to be that really nerdy person that used to write to the local member when I didn't like stuff happening. I was very nerdy <laughs> to the point where I wrote like I constant. My one of my uncles wanted to come to Australia for a visit, and they kept kept rejecting him. And I kept writing to my local member until he came. And um, so I kind of maybe just thought some kind of annoying advocate <laughs> for, some, for some cause. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. But I think that's kind of not not a particular profession. But when I kind of got 
you know, when I get things in my head, I... You go with them. I go with them, yeah. yeah. I like that. We've had a lot of answers. An annoying advocate, though, is yeah. one. Is that, yeah. yeah, I like it. I, I, I could just be advocate, but annoying, no, annoying is a advocate. Extra, yeah, a I like bit you. of an extra. <laughs> You've added the edge. It leaves a punch. So we, yeah. Um, well, look, thank you so much. It's been um, an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you. I know it's very... Very unique is why I want to speak to both of you from from yourself, Mohammed, having the experience of what you've gone through in life and and uh, and incarceration and where you are now, and then shame to have someone that's you know walking in corrections, who's walking on that other side of it, and has you know this whole other life of a brother happening, and then it come the two worlds collide, and it's just a fascinating insight that you've been able to give us as well on both sides and and so forth and how, how it's been. And, Look, thank you so much for, I know it's not easy, you know, and uh, your honesty and, and just letting us, share, sharing your story with us has been uh, has been incredible. And look, Mohammed, I really hope everything works out for you. You know, you're doing great things and, and uh, you can see that you're on the right path. So I really hope that that continues for you as well, um, long, long into the future as well. And, uh, you know, I can see the amount of great work that you can do for other people um, and your passion for wanting to do that as well. So thank you so much because I know it's not been easy talking about what it is and I know it's not been easy, you know, where you're going, what you're facing at the moment as well. So thank you. And Shema, always a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. It's Yeah, it's great to, great to have you in. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Next week on A Time to Rebuild. I'll do anything to stand up for my gang and I'll face down like we had the saying like one or 100 I'm going to yard like if there's a riot and I know my enemies are out there I don't care if it's me by myself or if it's a hundred of my homeboys I'm going to yard I'm going out there and I will face them but I won't I won't stand up when I know that I need to do the right thing and face that same ostracization or face that same level of violence or that pain I want to avoid that pain but I'll die for the gang I'll die for the hood I'll die for fill in the blank but I won't die. I won't die for myself. For my, I won't die for myself. I won't stand up for myself for my own freedom, or what I want, or what I say I want. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. A way of helping us is to subscribe, share with friends, and leave a review. If you want to take that next step, hit up our online store where you can purchase handcrafted wooden products. If you're sitting there going, I want to do everything I can, get a quote for facility maintenance needs at your business. We're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website, www.ymcarebuild.org.au. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.